This is episode 175 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. And yes, please excuse my voice just for this intro. I promise it's only for the intro and the rest of the episode is totally normal. But uh, Dr. Sapienza was appointed provost and senior vice president of academic affairs on May 1st, 2018. Dr. Sapienza joined Jacksonville University in July of 2013 as associate dean and program director for communication sciences and disorders, where she helped establish the first program of its kind at the university. In May 2014, Dr. Sapienza was tapped to lead the formation and strategic growth of the first new college at the university in more than 30 years, the Brooks Rehabilitation College of Healthcare Sciences. Under her leadership as dean, the college has garnered significant research grants from the NIH and the Department of Veteran Affairs and received accreditation from the Council on Academic Accreditation and Audiology and Speech-Language Pathology for its new master's degree program in speech-language pathology, the first in the region as well as accreditation for numerous other graduate programs. Her leadership saw the installation of one of the largest and most sophisticated nursing simulation laboratories in the state of Florida and the establishment of numerous partnerships throughout the healthcare industry. The college now stands as one of the largest and fastest growing at the university. Prior to coming to JU, Dr. Sapienza served for eight years as chair of the University of Florida's highly ranked Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences, helping it become a top 10 department within the UF Health Science Center. Her research has been funded by the NIH, the Veterans Affairs Rehabilitation R&D Service, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and the nonprofit Cure PSP. She has built a strong national and international reputation for expertise in the design and implementation of larger-scale randomized clinical trials examining treatments and protective disorders, as well as the careful reporting of peer-reviewed outcomes from these studies. Dr. Sapienza has been widely published in the area and is highly sought after by the scientific community as a keynote speaker presenter, and to lead workshops and clinical teaching platforms. Dr. Sapienza has served on numerous college and university administrative committees and boards and serves extensively in the community and is a recipient of awards through a variety of local and national channels, including the Florida Blue Sapphire Award, Brooks Rehabilitation Research Award, and various dissertation advising, faculty, and professor designations. Dr. Sapienza holds a PhD in speech science from the State University of New York at Buffalo, as well as a master's and bachelor's degrees in communication sciences. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Chris. Hey, how are you, Teresa? Good to see you. Good. Good to see you. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Yes. So Dr. Sapienza and I go semi sort of way back. She was at the University of Buffalo when I was at the University of Buffalo forever ago. And then 
she went on and did wonderful things in the world and is now in Florida. And then I went and did wonderful things in the world and followed her to Florida. So <laughs> now, she didn't know I followed her, but yeah, it's, I it's, love her it's so that. interesting. Yeah. It's so good to see you. It doesn't seem like that many years could possibly go by, right? I know. I know. Oh, I know. It was almost what, 25 years ago now. Wild, wild, wild. So anyways, if people don't know who you are, would you just tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, people refer to me as Dr. Sapienza. I like to go by by Chris. I'm a speech pathologist by degree and training. Been in the field of speech pathology really uh, since about 1993 when I took my first job at the University of Florida after graduating with my PhD from the University of Buffalo, as you say. And that was my my hometown where I was born and raised and, and well mentored there by the University of Buffalo faculty. Um, and currently right now I'm actually serving in administration. So I serve as the senior vice president for academic affairs, otherwise known as the provost of the university. And that's basically a person who's in charge of working with the faculty to develop uh, academic curriculum for the university and all the oversight of academics. So. I've sort of moved out of speech pathology in terms of my primary teaching and, and been working as an administrator for the last seven years. Cool. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, the reason I wanted Dr. Sapiens on today is I know everybody knows about EMST. Everybody's heard EMST. It's almost this buzzword of sorts. It, is it a technique? Is it a thing you do? Is it a product? There, there's all sorts of levels here that we're going to dissect. But yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love for you to take us to the beginning. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's funny that, that you bring Buffalo back up because, you know, my my mentor there was Dr. Elaine Stavopoulos, who is now retired. And um, she was my voice professor. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. You know, and nothing, nothing but good things to say about her and, and the way that she taught us. And it was really there when I think about where I began to love, you know, learning about respiratory function. Um, I don't know about you. I loved my anatomy and physiology classes and my neuroanatomy classes. And I did my dissertation, really the interaction between the respiratory system and the laryngeal system. And at the time, I mean, the, the dissertation was focused on, on kids with vocal nodules so I, I, after I graduated, when I moved to the University of Florida, you know, as you're a young professor and you're trying to achieve tenure, you know, the things that are going through your mind are, what am I ever going to study that is going to be different than the thousands of journal articles that are already out there? And so it's very intimidating for any, any young professor. And so University of Florida being a big place, even back then in 1993, I was very fortunate to meet up with two people that were really um, critically important um, in the start of expiratory muscle strength training. And that was uh, Dr. Paul Davenport, who was a respiratory physiologist and uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Danny Martin, who was a physical therapist. Well, I had met those individuals just as you get introduced to colleagues. And it was very sort of uh, circumstantial that, that the three of us had met each other. Because when I was teaching in my neuroanatomy class, really within the first year of my teaching at University of Florida, I met a young woman who had come up to me after class. And to make a long story short, she was suffering from the consequences of juvenile laryngeal papilloma. 
And so she had a very limited airway. And, and Teresa, when she came up to me, um, she had a very uh, hoarse, very raspy. Uh, it, it was a voice that you wouldn't connotate to the way that she looked. It, it, you know, you, you have a certain expectation of the voice that's going to come out of, a, out of a person's speaking. So she basically was having difficulty managing her ability to, to breathe and do exercise-based uh, tasks. So the, the funny part of the story was she said, you know, there's nothing that can be done for my, for my voice. It's, it's really what was left was after 20 plus surgeries was laryngeal scarring. And so the challenge that she brought before me, you know, as a young professor was, is there anything that you have that you could recommend that would relieve this dyspnea or this breathlessness that I feel when I'm exercising and even when she was speaking? And so it was a really challenging question because um, I didn't have anything really in the toolbox at that time to assist her. You know, I, I knew everything about voice. So anyway, I brought that challenging question to, to uh, Dr. Danny Martin and Dr. Paul Davenport. And that's where we began to talk about respiratory muscle strength training. And, you know, I'll pause there for a minute to see if you have any questions, but it was really Dr. Danny Martin's work that he was doing at the time on inspiratory muscle strength training for, for weaning patients off of mechanical ventilators. And from there, the story goes on, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there for a moment because it was quite fascinating how it evolved into an expiratory muscle strength training protocol. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, what I love most is I, I think this collaborative interdisciplinary type team, you know, was that something that I guess I'm curious how, how the three of you, you know, really, really came to be. Was it, you know, you were all part of one yeah. kind of weird department or you just met each no, other in a lunchroom no, or, just, you know. Met each other as <laughs> colleagues and, 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 you know, think back that this is 1993. So now when we use interdisciplinary and collaboration now, it's like, of course, right. You know, yeah. it's, yes, yes, that's yes. the way of the research world. But back then it was, it was happenstance. And um, I was, you know, speech pathology that was really at that time pretty far removed from respiratory physiology or even from physical therapy. So it was just, it was, I think it was meant to be, to be honest with you. And, and uh, so I brought the problem uh, down to those gentlemen and they did not know, it was funny because they did not know what juvenile laryngeal papilloma was. They did not know what a limited glottal airway was. You know, I was using all these terms that they weren't familiar with. And I, at the time, was not familiar with inspiratory muscle strength training. So in this particular case, we used the protocol of inspiratory muscle strength training to help this, I'll call her a patient, to help this patient. Because at that point in time, in, in, when you examine how the physiology works, what the problem was, was this particular patient wasn't able to kind of bypass this high laryngeal airway resistance caused by a narrow glottal space. So the only thing you could really do because it was structurally not going to move and she wasn't going to have any more surgeries to open up the space was, well, let's strengthen the diaphragm muscle through inspiratory muscle strength training, which will help her then develop greater inspiratory pressures, which will help bypass that increased laryngeal airway resistance, 
thus decreasing her sensation of dyspnea during any type of physiological work task. And a physiological work task could be speaking, it could be rollerblading, it could be running, right? It could be any of those things. Because what the folks have to remember that are listening to your podcast is that speech in and of itself is not a very strenuous respiratory task. It's, it's, it's very submaximal. But when we start to do other things like walk and talk, right, or talk and try to go up the stairs or we're, you know, playing a basketball game and we're shouting out or we're singing, right, where we're having to really elevate the respiratory uh, pressures needed to do the task. So this pilot study worked uh, for this patient. And it was one of the first papers we published where we showed that using an inspiratory muscle strength trainer in a case where somebody had a laryngeal disorder, actually was able to enhance the work of breathing and diminish the breathlessness and reduce the physiological effort needed to do certain tasks. And we, we tested her on a treadmill task. And that became the first published study of a collaboration between the three of us in the literature of speech pathology. Now that was back in the late nineties that, you know, so it took it took a while for us to get to, to phase two, if you want to hear about phase two. Yeah, of course, of course. So we, we uh, again, these folks didn't know too much about speech pathology. So I said, well, if these inspiratory trainers are already on the market, I said, what, what would it take for us to develop the reverse, to develop an expiratory muscle strength trainer that might be able to help individuals increase expiratory pressure for sound production, for uh, singing production. Dr. Davenport Paul at that time he had an interest in instrumentalist. So we said, well, could we you know, develop a device to help increase expiratory pressure for wind instrumental uh, players? And that's kind of where we stopped. That's the funny thing. We were like super focused on speech and voice and, and instrumentalists, but that got us started. And so at the time, University of Florida had a program where engineering and business and scientists would come together to develop product. And our idea was selected. Oh, cool. So, yeah, that's how the prototype got built. And, and that got built at the, at the University of Florida through this uh, supported, now, as you said, truly interdisciplinary, you build, a, you build the model, you create the financial plan, you build the prototype, you look at whether businesses are interested in it. Okay, so here's the funny part. We get done, we build the prototype, and now we're starting to study the prototype, and there's a, there's a paper published in 2002 on expiratory muscle strength training for wind instrument performers, right? And there's uh, studies that looked at expiratory muscle strength training for speech and voice and patients that had MS, right? So we started doing these, these uh, studies. My, my former doctoral student, who's now been at the University of Central Florida for over 20 years, Barry Hoffman, did her dissertation on expiratory muscle strength training for high-risk performers, you know, working with groups of high-risk performers that worked out of uh, Disney. And, and these, we call them high-risk because they were developing the nodules and, and uh, varices and hemorrhages, you know, due to the street theater performances that they were doing. Well, the, the interesting thing was while we were getting some decent results, 
it wasn't really affecting speech and voice as much as we thought. And that goes back to what I was saying is because it's speech and voice aren't re don't really need that much pressure. You, you only need, you know, four to five centimeters of water to produce a voice like this. So why, why use an expiratory pressure threshold trainer, right, to, to, to have to increase those pressures? So fast forward a little bit further along and a physician, a, ne a neurologist by the name of Dr. Michael Ogan, comes back to the University of Florida and a neurosurgeon by the name of Dr. Kelly Foote comes back to the University of Florida after their residencies and they open up the Center for Movement Disorders. And they basically asked for teams to be built. I was the speech pathologist faculty member there at the time and uh, you know, experienced in the area. And we started to do work together on Parkinson's disease. And so that began the studies of expiratory muscle strength training in patients with Parkinson's disease. And that's where things started to light up. I think what's so fascinating is we've, we've realized how many other conditions EMST can now help. And I always kind of chuckle when people are like, do you think we could use it for patients with Parkinson's? And it's like, that's where it started. So <laughs> It's so true. And thanks yeah. for following the literature yeah. because... That, that is that that was the big patient group where the findings, you know, were alerting the community to, oh, my, oh my goodness, not only does this expiratory muscle strength trainer give you that, that strength to be able to produce pressures to help with speech and voice, but also gives you the pressures needed to produce a strong voluntary cough or to be able to rehabilitate voluntary cough. And when we first started to present the data outside of not only speech pathology, but also to the respiratory community, and we started to talk about its importance for assisting with airway clearance, then everybody started to really become interested in it. And the, I guess, you know, the, I will call it the, uh, the, the, the relationship or, the, or almost like the consequence of studying patients with this device was I never had any intent. I don't think anybody did that this would be a tool that would help manage the airway. Yeah. And so now if you really fast forward to 2021 and you look at, you know, it's paper after paper coming out from group after group, whether it's, you know, uh, papers from Poland, papers from Brazil, papers from Ireland, papers from the US, the UK. And I think that's what makes me the proudest is that it has now been 25 years and the, the, the number of people publishing on this protocol uh, with the majority finding positive effective outcomes with these devices uh, it's something I just never dreamed of, you know, and and I think that that makes me just smile every time I, I read a new piece of literature. And it also makes me very proud that the translation of the work, not just being from the University of Florida or from Dr. Sapienza's doctoral students who have done tremendous work in this area, you know, Michelle Troche, Karen Hagelin, Emily Plowman, uh, Yasser Natur, Barry Hoffman, Susan Baker, and, and anybody else I missed, you know, this tremendous work from my doctoral students. But you don't just want your doctoral students to produce good work. 
you want investigators from all over the globe to validate this work. And it's happening. And, and I think that, you know, when I think about that and, and what we started 25 years ago, I don't think I would have ever believed we would be in this place. Yeah. Yeah. Are you doing fees, but you're not really happy with your software? Are you missing audio recording to complement your voice? Is your system lacking frame-by-frame, fast-forward, or slow-motion review? Is there no integrated fees report with your system? If your answer to any of these questions is yes, I highly recommend getting in touch with our friends at PatCom Medical, because honestly, these features are game-changers. They offer a software solution that includes everything you can wish for when doing fees, and it will work with any system, no matter the brand. You can reach them at info at patcommedical.com or visit www.patcommedical.com. That's P-A-T-C-O-M-M-E-D-I-C-A-L.com. Most inspiring about this is, is you painted the picture beautifully of just your just getting your, you just finished your PhD and thought, what in the heck am I going to do to make an impact in this field? How am I going to get tenure? How am I going to, yeah, what am I going to do here? Yeah. And, and, you know, interestingly, it, it became, it turned into a business. Now, let me tell you a little bit about why did that happen? And, and I want to, I want to, I think, make a statement that, you know, for so long, everybody gets so concerned about, well, wait a minute. You can't do business on something that you've researched. Sure you can. Let me tell you how. And people shouldn't be shy of being entrepreneurial. This is part of, you know, the outcome of, of good clinical research. So I'd like to speak on that for just a second. So remember, there was a group of people sponsored by the University of Florida, right, to build the prototype. And, you know, Paul Davenport was a big part of that. He's a, he's a genius. And I used to call him Inspector Gadget. You know, he can put anything together to make a widget. But um, the funny part of the story was when the prototype was done, the University of Florida determined that they weren't interested in the product. So whenever you work for a university, the university has the first right of refusal. And at that point, you know, uh, in the late 90s, they didn't see that this device would have much broad-based impact, that it would that it would make it worthwhile for them to invest in the device and, and patent it. So they gave the intellectual property back to us. Well, after that had occurred, um, we were still in the midst of doing uh, just a ton of studies on, on patients with Parkinson's and my doctoral students were just starting the early entry into, you know, studying airway clearance. And when we would involve the device in the studies, the patients would say after the four weeks, because the protocol was typically four to five weeks, would say, where can I get one? Well, there was no there was nowhere could I get one. You know, we, as, as responsible scientists, we, they had to return the devices back after the IRB approved study was, was done. And so um, the, where can I get one kept coming up? Where can I get one? Where can I get one? You know, are these on the market? Yada, yada. And uh, they weren't. And so um, we decided um, Paul and I decided to start a very tiny little company uh, and begin to 
uh, ship these out to patients that wanted to continue the training. Well, the funny thing is we were both working full-time jobs as professors. And, you know, I was raising two kids at the time. Paul was raising his family. And uh, the demand was much more than we could handle. And, uh, you know, our primary focus was our, was, was our I call it our day job. So uh, a, another small group of individuals came in and started a company called Aspire Products. And that's still who maintains the ownership of the device and sells the device and educates healthcare professionals. I do not receive a penny, a, a, a royalty at all off of the sale of the device. I don't own the device. What I do do for Aspire products, like you're doing here on this podcast, is I'm an educator. They will hire me to do uh, webinars and educate, and they pay me for that service. But Paul and I, basically, I'm going to say close to now nearly 10 years, sold our little company to Aspire products. So we don't have anything to, to disclose in terms of any new financial gain from the device. But, you know, I, I obviously when I educate on the trainers, I educate on all of the respiratory muscle strength trainers available on the market, inspiratory and expiratory. But I also direct people to what the literature indicates. And the literature over the last 20 years, and not due to, not due to any of my input, the literature has continued to use the EMST 150 in patient care. So it is the most um, widely used expiratory device in all of the clinical trials, single case studies, group designs, RCTs, you know, you name it. Now it's, it's not perfect. Um, I think of it as, as, as a, another uh, tool in the toolbox for working on muscle plasticity and strength training of, of muscles that we don't really have a lot of other alternatives to do. But that's how the, the device came to the commercial market. And when I educate, I say to folks, I, I'm going to present you the literature. You can make a decision which product you want to buy. I'm just going to present you with the outcomes of the literature. So, so Aspire Products you know, is, is a place, uh, a company that I value. I work for them as an educator, and I think they're doing a nice job uh, reaching out to healthcare professionals, um, you know, with with the device that they that they do sell. Now, there's other devices on the market that people need to look look at, and you know, just like you're a consumer of, you know, which shoes should I buy or which dress should I buy or is this the best uh, uh, face cream for myself? Right? You got to do the same thing with these devices. It's your choice clinically. Yeah. Awesome. I I love what you said about, you know, you teach about the different devices, but then you look at the research because I think, you know, as a clinician, that's something that we have to deal with from, you know, administrators or directors of rehab, like, okay, this device is great, but this device costs X. What about this device that costs, you know, 10% of that? So, you know, I think as clinicians and as wise consumers, it's smart of us to know, you know, well, the research is based on this product. The research is not. Yeah. And, you know, I always found it's, it's I think that's an unfortunate outcome of whoever manages rehab yeah. programs is, you know, I get that people are price sensitive, but price is not determining evidence base. 
you know, I mean, you and I can all, we, all, all of us can go out and buy the cheapest product. That doesn't mean that the cheapest product is the best product. And, you know, as a scientist, you know, again, choice is choice. I would just behoove anyone who's a consumer, especially in the discipline that's a medical speech pathology discipline, to look at evidence-based outcomes. And it doesn't mean that device Y, another device on the market, cannot achieve the same goals, but look to see whether there's been any studies that have been done to show that that result has been achieved. And um, so, you know, they, they, you do have to be consumers. But I, you know, I will say pet peeve of mine is to hear that a rehab manager says, well, buy this one because it's half the price. I'm like, is that really a good way to manage your, your rehabilitative program is to say to your clinicians, A, I can't afford this or B, let's buy the cheap one because, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. I don't think anybody would want their physician group to do that or a surgical group to, to do that and say, hey, you know, let's, let's get this instead of getting that titanium <laughs> yeah. product, let's get the cheaper one and put that in her leg. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know why as speech pathologists, we, we tend to apologize too much about what it is that we do or what, you know, if something drives up our costs. I mean, my goodness, we are you know, we're participating in life and death therapies, especially these that are dealing with, you know, the potential to penetrate and aspirate material for an individual to be able to, you know, clear out an airway. Those are some, uh, you know, pretty critical functions. Manipulating an airway is no big deal, you know. Yeah, right. (laughs) And and, and whether that's EMST or any other uh, treatment that you're doing, be proud of, of your role you know, in rehabilitating some of the the most basic life functions, breathing, right? Laryngeal protection, airway clearance. And and as you said earlier, the number of patient groups that we're working with in these areas is extensive. Um, So I, you know, I guess if, if I'm to express, you know, anything that, that, that part I think is, is just going to have to continue to evolve and, and, you know, speech pathologists have to continue to advocate for themselves and say, listen, this is, this is something we need inside of our clinical regimen. Why are you challenging me on a price point? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard of, in a, in a few different instances, just of whoever is the purchaser for the department just saying, oh, you know, Susie SLP, here, I bought you a hundred of these, you know, muscle strength trainers. I got them on clearance from the distributor, you know, and it's like, thank you. No, like, this is not what I had asked for, you know, so I I just know there's always those types of questions, you know, am I ungrateful that I got a hundred trainers or am I, what I I always say, yeah, yeah. What I always say to to folks is, you know, there's, and, and when I educate, there's a big difference between resistance-based trainers and pressure threshold trainers, regardless of who manufactures it. A resistance trainer is, is offering a much lower level demand on the muscles than a pressure threshold trainer is because it's a straight breathe through. You know, it's like putting a little screen between your lungs and your lips versus a pressure threshold trainer, which you have to generate the pressure calibrated onto the device before the valve opens 
to allow you to breathe. So you have to activate the muscles to generate that pressure in order to open up what that's why it's called a pressure threshold device that you have to reach the threshold of the pressure versus resistance. Right. Well, I, I, you know, I say, I say it humorously as well as validly. I'm like, well, if you want to just train with a resistance based device, it's not going to work because people slow their breathing rate down when they're presented with the resistance to the airway. So I said, yeah, don't go buy the cheaper device, go out and buy six, straws of different diameters and just change the resistance by changing the diameter of the straw. That'll cost you pennies on the dollar. Don't even spend the $10 or the $12 on the resistance-based devices. So why are the pressure threshold devices, any of them more expensive? Because of the mechanics inside the device. They're more complicated to manufacture. So it drives the price point up. And so instead of it being an $11 device, it might be a $50 device, or it could be a $70 device. And then if you make the device digital versus analog, you drive the price up even more, right? An analog clock is going to be cheaper than a digital clock. So, you know, that's just, that's just the, again, being, being a consumer. But I, I have to educate people on the difference between resistance-based trainers and pressure threshold trainers. And if you read the literature, the literature suggests this, the same thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not inventing this. This is based on, you know, resistance-based versus pressure threshold-based uh, protocols. And just like there's a difference between strength training protocols versus endurance uh, protocols. So that's what I try to do in the webinars. And then, and then I go into the literature that, that has utilized these protocols. And, and, and then as you say, you know, as speech pathologists are saying, well, can I use this with somebody that has, you know, uh, ALS? Can I use this with somebody that has myasthenia gravis? Or people have even asked, is this something, you know, I can use with spasmodic dysphonia? Yes, yes, no. <laughs> you know, there are some patient groups that it's not applicable to. And so the, the, the smarter the clinician you are, you'll make the choice based on your understanding of the mechanisms of the pathophysiology presented to you, right? So it's not going to work with a spasmodic dysphonia because a spasmodic dysphonia is a centrally driven neurological disorder that creates the spasms. Using a device that acts on the peripheral muscle adaptations isn't going to work. So it's not just going out and buying a device as a clinician, it's understanding the literature and more importantly, understanding the disease process that you're presented with. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying all that. I think just, you know, SLPs in general, just, you know, we don't get this foundational knowledge sometimes on, on how this all correlates. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it wasn't taught in school when we, we went for sure. And it's an evolving literature and it's, I think just starting to be taught in uh, graduate programs. I think most instructors try to teach about the pathophysiology of disease, but we need to continually educate ourselves because, you know, back in school, that stuff comes in and goes out and we're learning about so much as generalists that, you know, as we specialize, you know, we need to seek that continuing education. So I appreciate the fact of what you do on the podcast and the types of speakers you bring in because it's Thank very you. helpful. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, do you, I know this question comes up a lot too, is, is really what's kind of, especially now that we're hopefully coming out of COVID, 
what is, I guess, the most fragile population? You know, I know there's a lot of controversy. Can this be used in the ICU with, you know, really severe patients? Can this not be? And I know there's two camps that tend to battle a lot. So I would love. Right. Yeah. Well, the ICU is, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, if, if a person is incredibly frail, they, they have to be able to cognitively do the task. They have to be able to motorically do the task. And so ICU is complicated. I don't think it's a, a one answer. It's a, dependent on the patient's current state and, and comorbidities. If people are using it in the ICU for those that can tolerate it. They're using it to, to uh, attempt uh, to wean folks off with an inspiratory muscle strength training protocol. They're attempting to use a low threshold expiratory trainers to see if they can generate positive and expiratory pressures uh, in patients. Um, and then they're, you know, uh, educating the transference of that person from an ICU to the next level of rehab and introducing the devices as a, as a plausible mechanism to uh, help whatever the case may be. Uh, did the patient have a uh, lobectomy? You know, and, you know, now can we use um, inspiratory muscle strength training to work on training the other lung and the diaphragm to be as strong as they possibly can be to develop the pulmonary uh, lung pressures that we need? Uh, is this applicable to a quadriplegic or a post-traumatic, you know, motor vehicle accident? So, again, it's going back to what's the pathophysiology. If we're dealing with somebody who is an acute, you know, hemorrhagic stroke in the ICU, no, we're probably not going to implement these in the ICU, but we may want to educate the next clinician that three, four, five weeks after the stroke, depending on the symptomatology, these may become applicable devices. With regard to the COVID um, and, and the fear of there being, you know, an aerosol, obviously you're developing an expiratory breath flow through the device. It's all a function of your hospital rules, but more importantly, you know, if you are protected by PPE, you're going to be fine. Uh, that, that's what the PPE is for. So, so if you're protecting yourself, uh, it, it would be no different than if the patient were to cough or to breathe on you, or if you were managing their airway with a passing your and you're, you know, so you've got to have the appropriate PPE. So I think the bigger questions are, are less in the ICU, but how we use them in outpatient settings and, and whether people are comfortable right now with COVID using them in an outpatient setting. But it, it's all about following the CDC guidelines and not exposing yourself to any aerosol and making sure that you're protected. If you feel that you're protected, then use the EMST device. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> I think people get so, so wrapped up and very much so. Yeah. yeah. And I think the people that are asking those questions are probably working in settings where maybe they're, they're masked up, but they don't feel like they're completely protected. Not, you know, yeah. I don't know everybody's situation, but that's my hypothesis. Yeah. But yes, that's settling down. But I work very close. I work with, very closely with the pulmonologist who's, who's literally, you know, working in a skilled nursing facility that uh, not today, but uh, uh, six months ago and earlier than that was strictly taking state of Florida post-COVID patients for rehabilitation. And the trainers were utilized inside of that, that setting. 
we talked about it. It's all about the PPE. It's all about protection. I mean, if, if, if that were the case, none of our nurses and doctors would be treating any, any level patient care. We wouldn't have anybody working on mechanical ventilators in an ICU. I mean, so it's, 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 not, um, it's not that difficult uh, to think about all of the things, nebulizers, ventilators, passing ear valves, you know, the interactions that a physician and nurses have had in all of those ICU settings. So I wouldn't be afraid yeah. Uh, yeah. to use these devices Yeah, as long as you're protected. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. Let me, let me ask you, this is kind of switching gears a little bit, but I would love to hear what you think, you know, now that you've taken on more of this role in administration and academia, how do you feel about, you know, kind of where we are as a field as far as preparation for becoming a medical SLP? You know, because like you said, you didn't learn any of this stuff either. You've, you've learned it and self-taught it to yourself. So, yeah, yeah I think, um, I think we're, I don't think we've evolved very much in the standardized curriculum that ASHA puts forth. I mean, you know, post Jerry Logeman and, and, you know, moving swallowing into our field. Um, when you look, when I look at the curriculum, uh, it's pretty standardized. The templates haven't changed. I think it, the, 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 the books we use, the course content has pretty much stayed the same. Where I think it becomes unique is when the, the schools that are bringing in simulation, I think the schools that are, are working uh, on inter, uh, interdisciplinary uh, simulation models, how you interact with nurses, physicians, teach about mechanical ventilation, uh, teach about passing your devices, teach about you know laryngectomized patients, bring in patients into the classroom setting, experiential work on project-based learning, you know, get, get out of the, the, the Ferris Bueller, you know, didactics, always feeling like you have to administer a test in order to assess whether uh, someone um, really truly has the knowledge and skills. I think that's what starts to set university programs apart from one another. Um, I'm proud to say that we do that at, at Jacksonville University and, and we, we try to we, we are trying to integrate more and more our clinicians, our clinical supervisors into our classrooms as instructors. Um, those that are, you know, I don't want to sound cliche, but those who are on the front lines, those who are, you know, they, they are, our students respond so well to them as teachers because they're bringing in case-based scenarios and experiential uh, learning uh, projects. So I think if we continue to evolve in that way, then I think, in the medical side of speech language pathology, we'll be able to improve improve our skills. You know, when I was a, a, a student coming out of my program, I, I had never seen a hospital bed. I had never uh, known what all of the sounds were, you know, inside of an ICU. I was embarrassed, you know, going into that setting as a student. Very, felt very uh, shy and naive didn't know, you know, the hierarchy of uh, communications instead of a medical uh, practice, et cetera, et cetera. And I think now with simulation, we're able to, you know, introduce the students to all of that, uh, not just medical terminology, but really the interactions and then create scenarios that are time pressured, you know, or complicated or somebody, you know, passes away or passes out or whatever it is. And uh, then you can debrief that student uh, after those simulation scenarios. So um, we're very fortunate to have a very strong nursing faculty 
and a very large simulation center. So we're getting there. We're getting there. It certainly certainly has changed since I've been a student. And the and the the clinical supervisors, I think, are are excellent. You know, and we have to give a, a tremendous amount of credit for all of those individuals who are the master's level based clinicians teaching our students, not the PhD. Uh, individuals teaching our students and in, in, in really in the experiential part. So that, that's key in, in, I think, in my opinion, in, in academics and so many yeah. fields, including yeah. um, I love that because I think, you know, I'm such a huge proponent for both research driving clinicians. And I think we just need the most perfect marriage of both right. exactly. to help our students. And, and it's unfortunate that some, there's just such a dis- disconnect with some universities that are so heavy with the research and the professors doing all the teaching and no clinical. And then there's some that's just all clinical instructors without any sort of research foundations. And, and it's just, if we could marry a few of those universities, it would be yeah, at the better. master's level. It's got to be all about experiential and project-based learning and simulation. If you want to do research, then you, you do your doctorate degree and you choose that sort of academic uh, track. I don't think we have time at the master's level to do as much research as we think we're going to have the students do. They don't. They don't have enough depth of knowledge to even be able to to scratch the surface on that. And to be honest with you, and, and this would probably be one that most people wouldn't think that I would say, but they don't like the research methods class, you know, because it, it doesn't connect with them. They're, they're, you know, I think we do research methods. I think we need to do research but I, I, methods class, but I would say it's important to give your students the historical perspective of the field. You asked me how things have changed since 1993. How did it evolve? What's the storytelling? I don't think the students of today really appreciate all of the research that's been done to bring them to where they're positioned now in the field. And, and I think that's to be part of our teaching is the historical and uh, contributors to our discipline. You know, that if I have a student who can't recognize a name from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, that makes me, that makes me sad because those, those are the people whose shoulders our clinicians and our researchers are standing on. So um, I think that's why a research course is just for them to learn about how the field evolved, probably more so than whether they need to learn a statistical test that 95% of them won't use and, and only 5% of the field will go on for their PhD. So I just have a different slant on it. And that, yeah, slant, no, has, that, that, that slant has changed as I've, I've you know, yeah. as I've grown yeah. up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Through all of your uh, podcasts that you do, I mean, what what seems to be some of the burning issues, you know, in in the field of swallowing? Oh God, you, you know, right now that you want to educate. Yeah, and, and I think, on. and this kind of brings us back to what I was talking about with, you know, well, can we use EMSTM Parkinson's? It's like, well, that's where it came from. You know, I think it, it's almost like our our field, our profession, has sort of gone down this game of playing telephone, and it's like a lot of these, you know, techniques or you know, anything that we talk about, these these major topics somehow get diluted or, well, but we have to do it this way in our setting or, but, you know, our SNF administrator won't let us do it this way, so we have to do it that way. And, and there has to be some way to get people back to the foundation of, you know, well, why was this technique started in the first place? What does the research say? You know, I think of 
there's a lot of stuff with fees right now. And it's like, that is not how Dr. Langmore had designed this. It is not how the studies, when it was first coming out, were designed, you know, and I think we have to get back to our roots a little bit in where the research came from. Yes, I think you bring up that's people not reading the previous literature. You know, that's that's an instructor or a student not knowing the origin of how something evolved. That's why I love doing the webinars because you can sort of storytell throughout it. In my opinion, anybody that is going to, uh, well, I don't care what the technique is, become engrossed or want to use something regularly in their clinical practice, you better have gone through continuing education and continue to seek it and evolve with that technique that you're using or those techniques that you're using and, and really pay attention to what types of sessions um, can, can really help you grow as a, as a clinician. Um, you, you know, you can't just be clinicians that are satisfied with the $99 all you can have CEU sessions, you know, like let's really continue to educate ourselves and elevate ourselves in particular areas that we're working in. If I'm working in the ICU, then I need to be, you know, attending everything I can to understand, you know, my, my patients neurologically, you know, physiologically. Um, I need to understand, you know, comorbidities. I need to understand, you know, so much intricacies of, of human anatomy and physiology and, and safety, right. And hygiene. And, you know, there's just so much there. And, um, and that's different than if I'm working with an outpatient voice case, you know, that's what I think if, if anything's been fun for me in achieving my PhD, it gave me the ability in the field to really be super knowledgeable about the particular aspects that I was very interested in. You know, and I think as speech pathologists, whether you have the PhD or not, you tend to find something you really love, patient groups you really love, then study them and commit yourself to reading and learning. Um, if you stop doing that, I think you'll become a very bored yep. speech pathologist. <laughs> Probably a pretty lousy one, too. So. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Um, l- let me ask you, because this is a question that does come up a lot for lack of a better term, I guess the prescription for EMST, you know, and and I know that's what people ask all the time. Well, how many Mendelssohn's should I do in this session or, you know, and I know that's a question that, that comes up a lot. And for a lot of these exercises, we don't have, you know, studied prescriptions. Yeah. Well, the literature, the literature on EMST is pretty consistent. And I'm curious how you guys came up with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that has stuck around for 20 years and people use it and it's been validated over and over. And that's, uh, they train for four weeks. They train with the, the device five days a week. And they do 25 breaths through the device in one sitting. We refer to it as the power of fives because we wanted them to do five sets of five breaths. So they would breathe through the device five times, rest, five times, rest, five times, you know, up until you, you summed up to 25. And people, you know, so follow those protocols that you're reading in the literature um, because you can change that protocol, but the literature wouldn't support that you would get the same outcomes. So people always ask, well, can I do it two days or three days? They say, sure you can. I just can't tell you whether you'll be able to replicate the results that you're reading in the literature. I do believe that you will get an effect. I just, I can't 
I can't tell you it'll replicate the effects that are out there. So that, that's a pretty prescriptive protocol. The other thing that I'll say is, you know, the you don't really need to be certified to use these devices in any way. There's no certification. Uh, I'm not a big believer in that because I, I, I mean, why should I be certified in, in knowing how to use a, a treatment? They're pretty straightforward. They're relatively easy to understand, but you need to be educated. You need to be educated. And there's a difference between a person desiring to educate themselves versus an outside organization saying, well, you must go to this and be certified, you know, in, in order to use it. No, that's not the case with these protocols. I don't think that should be the case with anything in speech pathology. You know, first, it's my personal opinion, but you do need to be educated. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let me just ask you, where did you guys hypothesize the power of five or where did that even? We just wanted something that the patient could remember. Yeah. No. So we just came up with a little slogan. Cool. I think everyone just expects this huge, long scientific answer. Patients would be like, well, how can I remember? I said, well, you know, let's just, we'll refer to it called the power of five. Remember the number five, you know? And so it was this five times five equals 25 breaths, you know? And then we were very, you know, adamant about in patients with Parkinson's disease, we were very adamant that they always did this when they were about an hour on their medication cycle um, and that they were doing it at the same time of day. Now, why did, why did we do that for patients with Parkinson's disease? Because we understood how their medications affected their motor function. And we wanted to help them remember and get into a routine of doing it at the same time of day when they were on their medication cycle. And we learned that patients with Parkinson's disease throughout a day fatigue, whether they're grocery shopping, going to see their granddaughter, taking a walk around the block, playing with their dog. And so we didn't want that to interfere with how they felt or change the training effect by them picking random times throughout the week, you know, to do this. And it worked for them. And so we just decided if it's working for them and it's a good way for human behavior to adapt itself to doing a, a regimen, um, then let's go with that. It's no different than you, there are people that go to the gym say, I always like to go at six o'clock in the morning. I feel my best. That's really when I feel like um, I'm in the mood to exercise and people get into a routine. So it's establishing that routine for people. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a journey. There's yeah. no, there's no doubt about it. And I, I just encourage people to, that want to work in this area the literature evolves on a weekly basis. Uh, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of citations now um, and publications that are coming out from all over. You know, Teresa, we just put out a new book I wanted to mention um, with Plural Publishing. So we have a, a new respiratory muscle strength training book awesome. that I co-edited with Barry Hoffman. And the cool thing about the book is that... Um, Colleagues, friends of mine, you know, well-known people in the field contributed uh, to the book and wrote chapters that are case-based about their experiences oh, cool. um, with utilizing um, the expiratory muscle strength trainer. So that, that just came out. I think people will find that to be a really good collection of evidence from some really well-known authors. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, we'll make sure people know. All right. 
Well, thank you. Any, any final thoughts? This has been an awesome conversation. No, I just, I so enjoyable. That was a fast hour and thank you for all you're doing in the field and everything you've contributed and just great to be able to reconnect with you and know that you're around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. All right. Well, take care. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was wonderful. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.